for May 7th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 514. Tony Stark does not do incognito mode. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. We're like your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we're never happier than we're discussing the TV, the movies, the music, the comic books, the video games that you love and that we love. Hi, I'm Pete Fenzel. I'm your host today, and I'm all by myself because at the end of last week's episode, part one of our two-parter about Avengers Infinity War, I was abandoned as the entire cast of the podcast, our cast of thousands, turned to ash before my eyes. Except for one man who's lost in the quantum realm and another man who may still be alive. Overthinkers, are any of you left out there? I'm fine. I've just been really busy cleaning up ashes. Oh, excellent. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? This is Matt Belinky. Thank I mean, I'm your- fine, but like, let me tell you something. If if somebody that you love turns to ash and they're, they happen to be like on a couch at that time, you're never getting that couch clean. Like, you're going to have to get one of those, like, uh, either like a couch covering, reupholster the whole thing, or you just got to get rid of the couch and start again. There's a lot of ruined couches in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the end of mm-hmm. Infinity War. There's a lot of Craigslist. Craigslist would be hopping. Oh, my goodness. So many people dealing their free furniture on Craigslist. Uh, there should be, like, so the, the opening shots of Avengers 4 should be, like, a CVS, and there should be a pan down the aisle, and all the cleaning supplies are gone. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Oh, man. Well, Matt, I'm very glad that you came to join us for part two, our smaller, more intimate, maybe even a little bit more in-depth conversation still about Avengers Infinity War and about the future of the Marvel Universe. And let's see if our lost Avenger is ready to return from parts unknown. Oh, hey, guys. Hey, it's Mark Lee. Hey, Mark, how have you been? How's the quantum realm? Oh, it's it's okay. You know, there's a lot of subatomic particles. Um, I was hanging out with um, a guy who said he was an ant and a lady who says that she was a wasp. And also this lady who claims her that her military rank is Captain Marvel, which doesn't make any sense. uh, Because why would uh, why would the military have someone who's named after a series of comic books? Uh, That doesn't make a lot of sense. It Um, seems like it would be an obvious legal problem. right? Yeah, I know. Right. Lots of litigation. The lawyers would not allow that. Um, What did I miss? What did I miss? Anything happened? <laughs> well, the world changed forever. Really? With Avengers Infinity War crashing down on us with a... Uh, did you happen to see Avengers Infinity War while you were in the quantum realm, Mark? You know, it's funny. I mean, that that movie's playing everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, no matter everywhere. what realm you're in. <laughs> I mean, Excellent. it was it was subatomic in nature, but I, I, I did see it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I share most of the reactions uh, that the panel had uh, in, in the first installment. Um, and I'm ready to talk about it more. There's a lot. Great. We still have a lot on the table. To discuss. We do. We have we have a lot we still want to talk about. But first, I would love it if Mark you could tell our listeners about a special event that's happening next weekend in New York City, which I know I'm very excited about, and I hope that you're all excited about too. Right, not in the quantum realm, but in a in a, in a way, New York is a quantum realm. Um, we I'm referring to the Eurovision Watch Party. It is Saturday, May twelfth at two p.m. Uh, in the Midtown Bar called the Liberty. Uh, Matt Belinky. 
uh, myself and Matt Rather will be there. We're going to be watching Eurovision live from Lisbon, Portugal, also not in the quantum realm. We hope you can join us. Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash overthinking it to find more details. Excellent. I love this party. And this is a great place to come if you're an expat. I know we've had a couple of uh, national embassies, I mentioned that last week too, that have uh, directed their populations towards us and just big tables of people who are fans of every country. Uh, So please come to the party and please check out the YouTube channel, which is full of a panoply of entertaining and excellent YouTube content. And thanks, Matt, for writing a lot of that content. I think it's spectacular. And Mark for writing the rest. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Perfect. Spectacular. Okay, so Avengers Infinity War. Last week we talked about reactions, ideas about the negativity and the senses of loss, the senses of sacrifice, the big themes of the movie we delved into across a wide variety of of perspectives. But today maybe we start by uh, drilling down a little bit more specifically into some of the the characters who really spoke to us. And I know that there were a couple when we were talking before the show that we really wanted to dig into and talk a little bit more about in this movie. And I might as well go in alphabetical order with The Incredible Hulk. I think he was one of the big ones. So, Matt, you had some stuff you wanted to talk about concerning The Incredible Hulk, right? I mean, you know what I think is very interesting? So Marvel is great at making it seem like they had a plan all along, right? That, that like, that all these movies come out, and it's almost like they, they had it all scripted. And indeed, like, if you talk to interviews about them, they'll tell you that they've got it planned out 10 movies in the future. I don't fully buy that because the fact is, like, they bring on – People They give their creators a lot of freedom and a lot of leeway to play with these and to put their personal stamp on these movies. Um, and I think The Incredible Hulk is one of these places where maybe there was a plan for the – I mean, well, here, here's an idea. So going into Thor Ragnarok, um, the last time we saw Thor was in The Avengers 2, and he was going into space to look for the Infinity Stone. Hulk. Last time we saw Hulk. Not, not Thor. No, the, no, the, um, the, oh, Thor. Yeah, yeah, I'm building up to Hulk. So Thor is like, I've had a vision. I need to go into space and look for the Infinity Stones. And I fully believe that at that point, when Joss Whedon was hanging out with the Marvel producers, they had this plan that like uh, maybe Thor's next adventure will be more cosmic in scope, and there'll be Infinity Stones involved. And then um, when they they brought on the the brilliant uh, New Zealand uh, creator who whose name uh, escapes me much to my shame Taika Watiti thank you very much uh, I, I just wanted to say what we do in the shadows guy because uh, that's really what what I will always think of him as um, he clearly was not interested in telling a story about the Infinity Stones and they just sort of hand waved that away. Now, one thing that happens in that movie is they introduce the, this idea that uh, the Incredible Hulk has been the Incredible Hulk for years. Literally, he has not transformed into Banner for a long time. And when he finally transforms into Banner at one point in Thor Ragnarok, Banner is shocked and horrified to realize that he has been the Incredible Hulk. Like he's he's basically lost years of his life. And at the end of the movie, there's like a dramatic moment where he – he needs to transform into the Hulk to win the battle. But he actually says, he's like, if I turn back into the Hulk, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to change back. I'm a banner might be gone forever. And then he does it anyway. Right. Cause it's a sacrifice he has to make. And it, but it feels like that'll be like a theme about like the Hulk is in control. And are we ever going to see Bruce Banner again? And it turned out this movie went the complete opposite way. And it feels, and I'm not objecting to that turn at all, but I do wonder if that was a plan in Thor Ragnarok or if that was something where when they sat down to write this movie, they realized it made more sense to uh, sort of sideline the Hulk. 
I mean, it's tough to say what exactly. It's tough to say what the intention was, but let me just show, kind of share my reaction to the fact that the Hulk was sidelined for this. Um, it all, at first, it's played for laughs, right? And that essentially, like, there's a scene where they're all suiting up, and, well, Bruce Brannan, he can't get it up, right? There's sort of, like, a male impotence thing going on there, and it's very funny. It's played for laughs, uh, for sure. But as the movie progressed, I found it all the more tragic, that mm. he had this curse slash gift, and in the moment of great need, he could not summon it. And especially at the end, when he has to put on the suit, the Hulkbuster suit, suit which Tony Stark designed to fight, to keep the Hulk down, right? He now inhabits that. I mean, I, I guess a more uh, positive spin on it would be that, you know, he, uh, he takes advantage of it, and, you know, he and Tony Stark are friends and all that kind of stuff. But I took it as a very tragic thing. And that yeah. uh, uh, Bruce uh, Banner is is more cursed than blessed than anything else, and uh, sort of like him being comfortable in his own skin is something that is just completely lost to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that's yeah. So that's that was my take and on it. You know what else I know is so Bruce Banner is supposedly a brilliant scientist, and in Avengers one and two, he uses his science skills as much as he uses his Hulk skills. Right? They they call upon him in Avengers one because he knows gamma radiation and he can help with the Loki scepter. Uh, and in Avengers two, he does it. He creates Ultron, and then he creates Vision. Um, in this movie, not only doesn't he do anything useful, but he gets kind of shamed when he goes to Wakanda, and they're sort right. of like, "Why didn't you do it this way?" And he's like, "Sorry, guys." Yeah, it is so, interesting. So he's yeah. really kind of impotent. He's not useful as the Hulk, and he's not really useful as Banner. And you kind of get the idea that like maybe he's not even the best guy to be in that Hulk busting outfit. Like, what does he know about being in a power suit? Maybe they should just let uh let let you know one of the warriors from Wakanda handle it. Yeah, it's interesting. I had not thought about it, Mark, until you mentioned it, that the Hulkbuster suit is the tool for suppressing the Hulk. Mm-hmm. And so that Banner is in it's almost like he goes he goes full Catholic. He goes full Hulk Catholic in, in that he like he's like, I'm just going to like I, if if my fist causes me to smash, I shall pluck that. I shall tear it off. Right. If my eye causes me to smash, I shall pluck it out. Right. I, I will uh, I will oppose sin. I will oppose, <laughs> I will take up the sort of banner of chastity. In this sort of subversive, it is it is kind of funny to think of it as sort of Hulksturbation, where he's like simulating Hulkness, but being anti-Hulk at the same time uh, and kind of like making hulking unnecessary. Yeah, you read like the, the male impotency thing. Uh, oh, yeah. The scene, right? Yeah. Yeah. It goes back and forth between it being sort of about male impotency, but also about the Hulk being kind of vain and not appreciating that he's been beat up and, and being a child. This idea that the Hulk didn't get what he wanted, which was to smash Thanos. And I believe that Thanos was using the Power Stone at the time. So, of course, it makes sense that you know even the Hulk couldn't necessarily just take him on cold. Uh, but uh, but he he's on one hand, Banner is impotent. And the other hand, the Hulk is childish and vain and his feelings are hurt and he's uncooperative. And the the interesting psychological thing about that is that Banner and the Hulk feel differently about the situation, which I think is kind of creates a cool internal character dynamic intention. 
that that Hulk, the Banner and Hulk are not one character in this participation. Like Banner can't pull the Hulk out in the same way that the Hulk doesn't want to come out. Like there's not the same way. It's different, right? It's sort of a an opposite reaction. There's just a lot. People talked about sometimes how this movie, they didn't get things about this movie. They thought that the movie kind of was too, too crowded and kind of didn't make sense. I really feel like when you drill into the details of this movie, there's a lot of really subtle stuff worth mining. And it's just that the movie goes by so intensely and densely that it's easy to drop the details. And some of the yeah. details are like the specifics of the of the characters, I guess, in the yeah. Hulk. So the, the Hulk traditionally, the whole drama of his character is he doesn't want to turn into Hulk, but he, he doesn't have control over it, right? Yeah. The Hulk comes out despite his efforts to keep the Hulk inside. Um, and then they've inverted it a little bit here. And, and in other movies I can think of where he wants the Hulk to come out, but he doesn't necessarily have control over when the Hulk comes out. And as much as he'd like to turn into the Hulk on command. And it was there, there was this brief golden moment in kind of Avengers one and two with the sort of revelation. That's my secret cap. I'm always angry where he sort of effortlessly turns into the Hulk on commands. And that's not, so it was, a little bit of an interesting portrayal of Banner where obviously he can still get angry and and become the Hulk by accident. Um, but then he also can become the Hulk whenever he feels like it uh, and be very like imp- the, the Hulk is not this uh, rage machine who will just smash away at his friends. The Hulk uh, is in control. Right. So so it's almost like there are, there are two forms of, of Banner Hulk. Even if you go back to Avengers 1, right, the first time he turns into a Hulk, he's, he tries to kill everybody. He smashes the helicarrier. They've got to, like, you know, drop him, uh, you know, 30,000 feet to calm him down. The second time he turns into the Hulk, he's part of the team and he's taking orders from Captain America. And so it's it's – there are different modes of Hulkness. Right. Yeah. It's interesting uh, also to think of it. Oh, you can go ahead, Mark. Yeah, yeah. It's to take it a little bit of a different direction. Um, that uh, another reason, important reason why the Hulk was sidelined in this, as you mentioned before, right, is that, um, you know, Thanos has power over him. And it also, uh, in other movies, like the Hulk is so powerful, you don't have a sense of what, if anything, could possibly stop him, uh, aside from Mjolnir, right? Thor's hammer, which isn't in play here in this movie. Um, so uh, it, it brings up. The broader question that I've been thinking a lot about, which is the powers of these characters and what their limits are and how often they are not well defined. And it's, I contrast it with Superman uh, and Kryptonite, right? Like, you know, Superman is, is, is probably, when you look across the entire pantheon of superheroes, the most powerful uh, of them. Uh, and yet he has a very clear defined weakness. Um, the Hulk, at least when he is the Hulk and not Bruce Banner, uh, until we saw him get punched out by Thanos, was entirely without limit. Um, likewise, a lot of the Asgardians seem to be uh, nearly limitless. I mean, a lot of them were killed by Thanos, but then uh, Thor is floating around in the vacuum of space and then doesn't die. And then uh, later uh, doesn't get does, uh, is mostly killed by a direct... Uh, uh, light from a sun but also like again goes out to the vacuum of space and like surfs on a big metal ring or something like that um so uh my question to you guys is basically you know do you agree that the powers are not well defined and, and the limitations are not well defined uh and if so why 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 are we still able to tell satisfying stories yeah you know, that's very interesting i, I think this to me, goes into a file that we're going to start filling up in this podcast about why Marvel 
does so well, why Marvel can pull this off for movie after movie after movie and keep these characters interesting, whereas other franchises seem to run out of steam. I agree that the powers aren't well-defined, but I think that that's very purposeful and they pull it off well because think about how many times we've seen iron man now think about all the new cool things that he did in this movie every time we see iron man he pulls out a new trick uh, and think about how many of the heroes that's true of every time we see dr strange he's going to use different powers even someone who should have static powers like spider-man spider-man has a brand new suit in this movie that can do cool new things and uh, i mean like thor is completely different weapon set and power set now that he did even two movies ago they're really trying as hard as they can to have these heroes not do the same thing again and again and it's funny that like for most superheroes you can't get away with wolverine's powers are always wolverine's powers and in the past i mean it's it's almost like um i mean i recall it being sort of a family guy joke in superman 2 where superman uh is being rushed by a bad guy and he pulls an s off his chest and he throws the s at the bad guy and it turns into like a giant piece of cellophane and wraps the bad guy up and it's it's both completely out of nowhere and completely useless um, but you sort of you see this impulse even way back then, and like that was probably the early '80s Superman too, um, to be like, well, he can't just fly and punch people and have cold breath every once in a while and the 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 heat ray. He's got to have new powers every movie. But it seemed it seemed much more forced. Whereas Marvel, I think, from the very beginning, has written the characters in a way that their powers are going to be a little different every time we see them, and that's part of what makes the characters fun to revisit. Yeah, it's also interesting to think about what changes and what stays the same from movie to movie. I I was thinking about this in in regards to the obvious kind of, I guess, control group here, other than DC, would be Star Wars, where what are some other ways that a similar sort of model is making different choices that may or may not work? When you move from Force Awakens to The Last Jedi, Rey, for example, has a lot of the same powers and abilities. Even even in the first movie that she's in, she has a lot of the Jedi powers that you would expect someone to get after a bunch of training. And she strengthens them and gets better at them in the second movie. But when Rey is present in a scene, there's the general same sort of level of expectation that she can do things. But the thing that really changes about her is her entire backstory changes. Or rather, you go from the J.J. Abrams mystery box, which has certain implications and suggestions of what it might be, to the Ryan Wilson uh, aristocracy, bloodlines don't matter, you're nothing, and you're just sort of self-created. And it it was interesting that the difference in Ray to me, between her being... Somebody who has, you know, intermediate Jedi powers and a mysterious past versus someone who has intermediate Jedi powers and no past feels like a bigger discontinuity and a bigger jump than Iron Man going from being, you know, an aging bachelor who can't get his relationships to work despite his immense charisma and resources in an iron suit to the same thing, but in a suit of nanoparticles that doesn't obey any of the laws of conservation of mass. <laughs> so it's interesting that like that Iron Man's powers change, but the the there's a certain groundedness to Iron Man's character and to the sequence of events that's led us to this point and how they affect him as a person that makes the movie feel grounded. Now, I would say, though, that, Mark, I think you have a point in that I don't think they can keep doing this forever. I think that at some point there needs to be a climax. They need to back off 
and depower everybody a little bit or else it just starts getting silly. And part of why this movie gets to be so big and huge in that regard is that it's at a climax. Mm-hmm. But 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 I mean, those are two different suggestions, right? One is that mm-hmm. the character and emotional grounding is picking up some of the slack that the not being grounded in terms of the powers is kind of leaving up. And the other one is the reason that their powers are you know starting to become ill-defined is because Thanos is here. The Infinity Stones are here. This is a fully cosmic, full crossover event story. And in this kind of story, it's kind of okay if we play it a little bit loosey-goosey, as long as we haven't already blown it up to this point. And we sort of kept things like relatively mm-hmm. controlled up to this point. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, if you if you want to start handicapping who's going to make it through Avengers 4, it's not a bad metric to go on. Who is so overpowered at this point that nobody short, short of Thanos would be an interesting adversary for them? Yeah. And on that list, I'd put, I'd put Tony. I would put Thor. I'd kind of put Doctor Strange, which is interesting because I think he will have another movie. But he seems so capable and, you know, like comes really close to single-handedly taking out Thanos that I almost – I am kind of curious what they've God for him that's going to seriously challenge him when they have Doctor Strange 2. Well, he's got to lose the time stone, right? He's got to lose the Eye of Agamotto or whatever it is at the end of this movie, one would think. And that would depower him. Maybe he's going to have like a, oh, I'm, I'm totally wrecked again and I have to build myself up from scratch or something along those lines. Maybe, I hope he doesn't lose his cape. His cape was my favorite character in that movie. Hmm. Yeah, really I'm, sweet. I mean, the, the cape took some heavy hits in this movie in Infinity yeah. War, so I hope the cape's okay. I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting that, it, it, does the cape have a soul? Is the cape, uh, I mean, I suppose we, we could revisit the tape, but does the cape turn to dust? Well, all of their Strange clothes turn to dust, right? Their, their clothes right, turn but, to dust. I, I would say, is the cape really his clothes, or is it merely a sentient being that chooses to ride on him? Is is somewhere Aladdin flying over Agrabah and his carpet turns to dust and Doctor yes, Strange's cape point. doesn't? Like, yeah, I would say like, like the, the carpet is not an accessory for Aladdin. It's like yeah. a it's like a like a horse basically. Like right. the cape is like a horse. <laughs> right, a horse that it's has, a horse that rides has. him. <laughs> a horse that rides can, him. Can, yes. Before we leave the topic of the powers uh, altogether and start moving in different directions, uh, can I argue that the most important superpower is not so much super strength or uh you know magic or spidey sense or anything like that it's banter bruce banter (laughs) it's 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 the witty banter and repartee between characters um that uh marvel has succeeded immensely at and uh the dc movies and frankly a lot of other big blockbuster movies um can only like barely get in, in within striking distance of see the trick with marvel is that they didn't the, the other movies the other comic book movies didn't tell you that comic books is actually two words as a name and that you can look at the first word in the name of the thing when determining what it is that you're adapting because a lot of people look at a comic book and they just think that they're adapting a book but all of a sudden marvel's like oh it could be comic that could be great right it, <laughs> it could be- i can't tell if that's a real theory you're positing or if that's a joke you're a pun you're making on the on uh, on the term comic book well, you know what? It's funny that you should say that because Marvel works that way, too. Right. I can't <laughs> tell whether it's real or a joke. And I'd like to go into that a little bit because one of my my favorite. So Drax the Destroyer is rapidly become my favorite Avenger. I love Drax. And I think the moment <laughs> the moment where Drax and I guess he's a guardian now, but I consider there to have been some sort of AFL-CIO merger but, uh, that Drax 
won me over in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when he had the uh, sort of empathetic moment with Mantis where he explained to her what death is and what it's like to experience loss. But it wasn't clear in the moment that that was really what was happening, that he was she was feeling his sadness for his lost wife and child. And if you kind of go back and think about what was going on in that moment, she's been living on Ego the Living Planet. She's not encountered death before. She's lived alone with a celestial. And so she's never actually encountered loss. And then by teaching her about loss, that's what ends up changing her mind about helping the Guardians versus helping Ego when Ego is going to consume all these planets for his own benefit. So Drax tells the truth to Mantis. And and Drax has this sort of handicap where he can't speak in irony. And so I've come to believe now, especially after this movie, that it means Drax is the holy fool. Drax is a Shakespearean fool. Drax always tells you the truth. And there were two jokes in Infinity War that hit that note you were talking about between, is that a joke? Or are they really telling me something that's very important? <laughs> and, uh, and both of them for me were by Drax. And one of them is a line that's quoted often, by people who are now appreciating this movie, it's the whole, where's Gamora? I'll do you one better. Who's Gamora? I'll do you one better. Why is Gamora? Right? <laughs> now, that's funny. And it's funny because it's like Drax doesn't have social skills and he's he thinks that they're playing a game where they're each asking successively more challenging questions. But if you consider what the story is actually about, right, is uh, that that Gamora is out there and they're looking for Gamora. Okay, fine. That's one level on which the story is proceeding. The second story is, wait, who is Gamora? Gamora is the daughter of Thanos. Oh, this turns out to be really important. Gamora knows where the Soul Stone is. This turns out to be really important. Gamora turns out to be the key for Thanos getting the Soul Stone. This all turns out to be really important. This is not information that the Guardians or the Avengers have at this point in the movie. They don't know who Gamora is in the context of everything that's happening. And and they know she's their friend, but they don't real and they know that she's related to Thanos, but they don't really appreciate what it means that she's Thanos's daughter, like his adopted daughter. But then Drax comes in and says, why is Gamora? And I think that that is the question more than anything that's going to inform the Thanos plot of Avengers 4. That's going to, you know, whatever it's, whether it's called Avengers Infinity Gauntlet or whatever it's called. Why is Gamora? I mean, this is, this is informed a little bit by what happens in the comics, which I won't go into too much detail. But why, if Thanos is so dispassionate about individuals that he is willing to sacrifice the, you know, half of the life in the universe in order to, uh, well, what he's doing, we talked about a little about it last time, he's not really accomplishing anything because he has a very poor understanding of economics or, in fact, he's a psychopathic bullshitter. Oh, sorry, uh, bleep that one so we don't get the chili peppers. <laughs> that he, or he's psychopathic. And he's just lying. And what he really appreciates is the beauty of the balance and the power that it gives him. And the actual extrinsic benefits of it are not important yeah. to him. Was it was it Stalin who said one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if that's the case about Thanos, then why is Gamora? <laughs> right? <laughs> is it because Thanos sees himself in Gamora? One, one idea that would be interesting riff on the character, because Thanos mentions in this story that he wants to he wants Gamora to have his throne someday that he made a throne specifically so that Gamora can sit on it okay uh one interesting translation of the comics would be is Thanos suicidal does Thanos not want to live 
Because in the comics, he's in love with Death, who is a personification, Mistress Death. But in this story, he seems to feel like everything he has to do is a huge burden and that nothing that he wants is important. But except for the the sort of psychopathic things that he really wants, this mission about balance and life and death and people, you know, people uh, really kind of negating the idea that life intrinsically has value with this idea of the system wide efficiency argument he's making, which is nonsense and covering up for something. So is it that Thanos picked Gamora to succeed him because he's kind of this weird narcissist and he wants to die, but he also wants to still exist? Or is it that that it's going to be a kind of power of love situation where Gamora is the Jiminy Cricket that talks him down from the ledge or that pauses it, you know, gives him a reason to figure out, oh, you know, maybe I don't have to conquer the world. Maybe I can just sit in this chair. Right. Which would be a, a tick solution to an Avengers problem. But I'm just saying that, like, Thanos can talk to Gamora now. Through the soul stone, presumably, because Gamora's soul is probably in it when he killed her. So she's alive. And that's, oh, yeah, that, wow. they, huh. they, they deliberately leave the powers of the soul stone ambiguous in this movie, and they don't match up one to one with the comics necessarily. But I think it's suggested. Well, it's definitely in the comics, but it's suggested that there's a pocket universe inside the soul stone where Thanos can kind of go to experience some sort of trance state. And it's the same kind of color as, as the sort of weird uh, soul space that, like, maybe either Black Panther goes to or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I want to take yeah. a little bit of a tangent here on the stones yeah. and, the, and the gauntlet because my read of the end was that the gauntlet was destroyed and the stones as well were either destroyed or rendered impotent because Thanos did his thing. He, he used the power up. Uh, that does not sound to be uh, like your interpretation, Pete, if the stones are out there. I feel like this. Well, he, he teleported away after. He snapped. Right. Which means that at the very least, the space space stone was working a little bit. I think he might be unable to harness the power of all of them simultaneously anymore. Or we might be in a situation where it's malfunctioning, where the gauntlet has kind of gone wacky and people will grab it. And then it's like, oh, no, everything is now cheeseburgers. Right. Which I I kind of think it's it's almost necessary because otherwise you get into like a, a Dragon Ball Z scenario where like everybody can just undo what was done before. Yeah, because like if if he could do it, then the next person could get the Infinity Gauntlet and snap, and there are no consequences. It's too easy to undo everything. So I kind of like the idea that he did it, and it's irreversible. Or at least if it was going to be reversed, it can't be reversed in the exact same way. Yeah, it's it's basically like taking your Mitsubishi Evo to the track and just like running the boost super high, hooking it up to some Nas, and just like blasting it for one lap. And it, yeah, it'll still run, but it won't do that again. Right, like it's it's done. It's done with it being at full power. Right, right. it's uh, um, yeah. Can we, can we go back to Drax for one, yeah, another yeah, moment? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I really like this idea that like uh, he seems like a, a fool, but he kind of is the only one who really knows what's going on. Um, yeah. So go back then to the scene where he's creeping on Star Lord and Gamora, oh, <laughs> like might be, eating, might be eating his favorite. snacks. Right. This might be my favorite scene of the movie for a bunch of reasons. I mean, I, I, I guess one way to read it might be like he's the audience stand-in. It's like, that's us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just the voyeur. Sort of gawking right? at him. Yeah. Yeah. Like acknowledging that we, in fact, want to watch the dude and the alien hook up or have their, like, you know, squabbles, have their, like, uh, we're, having, we're having all this joy and entertainment uh, at yeah. their expense. Yeah. You know what I'd be really curious about? I'm going to perform an experiment when this comes out. So then the, the immediate question is, like, how long have you been watching? And he says, an hour. How far in the movie do you think uh, that comes? <laughs> it could be pretty close, actually. <laughs> That's so great. So so thinking about that scene, there's a couple ways in which it functions. One, which is kind of surface level, well, not surface level, one that I don't think is intrinsic to what I'm talking about, but is still a nice layer, is that when Benicio Del Toro 
is being abused by Thanos. Uh, Thanos asks him, where's the stone? And as has been much commented online, this is potentially a callback to Benicio Del Toro and Snatch. Uh, smacking somebody and be like, where's the stone? Hmm. Right, which is the same, the same thing. And so on one level, Drax saying to Chris Pratt, if I stand really still and I don't move, nobody can see me. I'm working on this new technique where nobody can see me if I stand still. On one level, it seems kind of like a dig at Chris Pratt being in the Jurassic Park movies, which yeah. have that hmm. mechanic. That's, that's what I was thinking. That Those yeah. are T-Rex rules right there. Exactly, exactly. And another level is, well, did it work? <laughs> because if he's really been standing there an hour and they didn't see him, we all laugh that it didn't work. But maybe it worked that Drax has sort of chameleon powers, potentially. And this might show up at some other point. But the other one was, and I wonder if this is the case, we get at the end credits scene, and we can talk about this in a couple of ways if you want, there's the beacon goes out on the two-way pager to Captain Marvel, right, who is somewhere out there with Five Mouskowitz, right, like beneath the pale moonlight. Somewhere out there, we don't know where in space, we don't know where in time, there is another superhero who is very powerful. And and the sigil has come up, and at some point, presumably, this person will show up and will fight Thanos or help organize people to do things that will eventually fight Thanos. Great. Awesome. Uh, the, one of the questions is, well, why is this person not dead? It, or how can we know for certain that Captain Marvel isn't also dead because of the snap. And one idea I had was, what if she's in some sort of stasis? What if what if Nick Fury knows that Thanos is is going to get the Infinity Stones or that he's coming or there's a risk that Thanos actually will obliterate all like half life in the universe? And what if uh, Captain Marvel is in some sort of stasis as a sort of last ditch effort in case of emergency break glass with the idea that if she isn't moving at all, Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet won't be able to see her. And I thought that that would be a really – I don't know if that's what's actually going to happen, but I thought that would be a really cool nod if at some point there is some case where you somebody escapes the snap by using Drax's technique. And I thought that would be really cool. Uh, the other the other uh, line that gives me this sense, because there's another character who always tells the truth, and it's Luis from Ant-Man, <laughs> right? Uh, and Because and, he, he's the another audience surrogate. Um, he's wonderful. And in the Ant-Man and the Wasp trailer, they're driving in a van, which came out the day after Infinity War, right? Like, was breaking everything apart. Uh, they're driving in a van. The van gets really small, and Luis goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then the van gets really big again to regular size, and he goes, huh? We didn't die. We didn't <laughs> die. Right. <laughs> Which to me was hugely relieving because it was I mean, I, you got to think they knew that a lot of people were distraught and over the deaths of the superheroes. And this is the like the reason the timing for the trailer is to remind everybody, hey, we're Marvel. We're, we're upbeat. You know, we're, we're lighthearted. It, it can still be fun. Uh, but the other hand is, well, what if Ant-Man and the Wasp? are in the quantum realm, which means they get super duper small and, and they're out, you know, looking for Michelle Pfeiffer or whatever. And what if they get really, really small and then they get big again and they didn't die, which is a possibility. Although it seems like one of them might die, but it's kind of funny to think that that line might also echo something that happens in the beginning of the second half of infinity war. But this might also just be wishful thinking. I just like the idea that, that James Gunn and Drax have been like feeding us lines like clues throughout the movie. Uh, although I haven't figured out yeah. what the rubber band man significance is yet. Well, it's uh, a great song. It's the spinners. Yeah. I mean, does um, it mean that Starlet's going to bounce back? 
<laughs> does does it mean that Thanos is the rubber band man? Because here he comes and he's crazy and he's better than everybody and you don't know why and you've underestimated him. I don't know. Definitely. But Matt, go ahead. Well, the, uh, the rubber band man song, if I recall correctly, is about a guy who like comes into a club, like a nightclub or something, and proceeds to like play the rubber band as a musical instrument, and it's like amazing, and everyone is blown yeah. away by his his virtuosity. So he's like an incredibly talented musician. He's incredibly talented in something, but in an extremely unorthodox way that nobody's expecting. Yeah, yeah. He stretches. So I don't know if if that more describes the Guardians of the Galaxy, which is like they're the best at what they do, even though they they aren't your typical heroes. Um, or it's it's somewhat of like a hint about like how they're going to come at Thanos. That if you come at Thanos and you try to punch him really hard, it's not going to work because he's looking for the punch. But if you walk in with a rubber band and you play an awesome rubber band solo, he'll be so shocked that he's going to forget to punch back. Well, you just described the end of the first <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy movie with the with the dance off. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's really it's like, I'm distracting you, bro. But before we go into that, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about Iron Man a little bit more than what we already said. Right. That the Iron Man, he's such a center of this movie. We talked about Hulk's character a little bit. We talked about Drax's character a little bit. And I know that you guys had at least some strong feelings about Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man in this movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. He's the center not just of this movie, I think, but of the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and we also recently rewatched Iron Man. We have an overview there. Check that out. Uh, on the website overthinkingit.com um and again my overriding take uh, on tony stark similar to that of bruce banner and the hulk is that of tragedy uh, i know it's not a big surprise right uh, I, I feel a lot of uh, tragic feelings uh, from this movie but let's just briefly go down memory lane with tony stark and his character arc and all the crazy things that he has gone through Right, we starts out as this uh, uh, playboy, irresponsible arms dealer. Um, nearly dies in Afghanistan, busts out of the cave, defeats his former mentor, um, enters a relationship with uh, with his uh, assistant Pepper Potts. They fall in love. Um, Iron Man two, some stuff happens there. I try to block that one out. <laughs> well, um, no, Iron Man two, he meets somebody who does the same things that he does. And he has to surpass him. Yeah, I think there's also reconciliation happen. with the father stuff in Iron Man Two. Yeah, if I remember yeah. Correctly. he's also, and I think um, I think this is interesting in Iron Man Two. What he's trying, he's not a full time superhero. He's trying to like introduce clean tech and sort of like. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like his focus is still on running a successful company, but the focus of the company is no longer on weapons. The focus is on like clean, renewable energy. But then like, as we move on in the series, it's pretty clear that like he no longer is what he's interested in is protecting the earth. Yeah. And Avengers, yeah. right. A huge turning point for him, uh, where he nearly dies. He was prepared to sacrifice himself, uh, at the end of that movie to save everyone. But he, he comes back, he takes everyone to shawarma, but he's got horrible PTSD, which we explore a lot in Iron Man 3. Um, and he's so paranoid to the extent in uh, Age of Ultron where he creates a horrible Skynet artificial intelligence that nearly kills everyone. And he's racked by this guilt, and that causes him to do the Sokovia yeah. Court stuff, which, which runs the, the team apart. And then here we are in, uh, in Infinity War where, um, he, again, he, he, he leaves Pepper – uh, behind and Pepper's like you, you come home this instant, uh, Tony Stark, or else. Um, and uh, so he's left at the end with failure. Like he's left Pepper behind. He can't get his relationship stuff together, and he has failed to protect mankind. Yeah. That's pretty dark. It's tough stuff. 
if you think of Avengers 3 as a direct sequel to Avengers 2, which of course it's not, but if you think of it that way, there's tremendous continuity in Tony's arc. I was rewatching some of Age of Ultron, and at the very beginning of the movie, the Scarlet Witch gives him a vision, and the vision is all the Avengers are lying dead at his feet, and he's the last one alive, oh, and Captain wow. America dies in his arms, and then he's talking about it to Nick Fury later, and he says, I saw all my friends die. That should have been the worst thing, but it wasn't. And Nick Fury sort of nods at him. He's like, the worst thing is that you didn't. Hmm. Yeah. And it wow. literally it's like, I mean, I'm sure they they rewatched that and took careful notes and they're like, let's actually make that doesn't happen in Age of Ultron. Right. But it's like, let's actually have that happen. Let's give him the survivor's guilt that he's been afraid of that, that, that someday he's going to get people killed. Um, yeah. And he finally has to now deal with that. Although, I mean, honestly, it's been pointed out that it's not like. Thanos beat Spider-Man to death. Spider-Man would be just as dead if he'd stay on Earth. Although I suppose you got to wonder, like, you know, if he was in a different place, would his number have come <laughs> up differently in the random number generator? Yeah. But but basically, like, it, it, I'm sure he feels guilty for getting Spider-Man killed, but he didn't actually get Spider-Man killed. <laughs> well, this is the kind of situation where you kind of have to blame the villain rather than the hero. But of course, the hero is going to blame themselves. Because the hero, because there's with Iron Man in particular, there's that cyclical relationship. He's he's all three people in the Aeneas tableau, which is the the sort of the Roman, the sort of Roman ideal of individual and and collective achievement. The sort of nexus in Roman culture, ancient Roman culture between individual achievement and collective achievement is Aeneas leading his son uh, is Ascanius or oh gosh, how am I forgetting their names and, and carrying his father as they all leave the burning ruins of Troy. And that there's like three, there's three generations and there's the guy in the middle who has to carry the father and lead the son. And that's kind of who Iron Man is because he starts out as the son who wished that his father was there to lead him, but he's not. Then he comes to terms with that and he becomes the adult, right? And then after that in Iron Man 3, he has that little kid that he meets. And so then he becomes the father of him. And so he, and, and now he's, and he's the father of a child. And now with Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Man is now an adult and now he's the old man. Hmm. And the yeah. way it's supposed to work is that he's supposed to be the one that dies now that he was the kid. He became the man. He went through the Oedipus arc, right? He, in the morning, he had four legs in the day. He had two legs in the evening. He now has three legs and now it's supposed to be the time for him to die. And uh, and it didn't work. And that's not the way that it happened. And that just is something just so, so wrong for his character. It's it's a delightful it's a delightful kind of expression of failure, uh, just a metaphysical failure, like the universe is wrong for him in an emotional way, as well as in um, material ways involving the dematerialization of his friends and relatives, mm. which is always rough. I do have to say one of one of the things that made me roll this eye, my eyes at the movie, and I love the movie, and I rolled my eyes very few times, is the very introductory scene with Iron Man where he's like, "I had a dream," uh, because it's really one of the sort of laziest screenwriting tricks of the book. Is like, <laughs> yeah. how do we get across that he like kind of like is thinking about being a father? Uh, yeah. Let's have him talk about a dream where he's a father. Um, but yes, <laughs> we 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 get it that that's his theme of the movie. They should have had him uh, in his workshop. Uh, reading, you know, working on something, but also reading the news and getting a bunch of ads for baby clothes and him, and him being like, I don't know why I'm getting all these. I don't know why I'm getting all these ads. It's like, Tony, <laughs> have you been looking up? Have you been looking up baby things again? Like, ah, you know, it's, uh, 
That's how Target finds out if you want to be a father. He, he, creates, he creates Jarvis and uh, and Ultron, these all powerful artificial intelligences. He doesn't know how to block ads at his, uh, and stop cookies in his browser. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tragedy of Iron Man. Mark does not do incognito mode, Mark. That is not something he does. <laughs> um, so something else that made me roll my eyes, I guess, I guess a little bit at the movie is the aforementioned Tony Stark. You come home this instant. Peace. Um, with Pepper, because uh, A, we've kind of seen it, a version of that, several times before, and B, it feels like that relationship deserves a lot more than that kind of uh, uh, nagging wife thing that we hear. That's at least how I interpreted it. Did yeah, their relationship, their relationship seems to be kind of on the way out. Like it when does, Paltrow doesn't a, want to be in these movies anymore. Well, I don't know. It's more, I don't know. It's weird. It's like, I don't know whether I don't know whether it's on purpose or. I mean, it's weird. Whether- they were legit broken up uh, during uh, Captain America: Civil War, and oh, then wow. and then she came back. She they got back together sort of off screen during Spider Man: Homecoming, Did and she was not- in that movie a little oh, bit. I forgot about and that. And now they're back yeah. together. See, that makes it that makes it all the weaker, right? Because all this yeah, stuff happened. Yeah, because he was skeeving on Marissa Tomei. On the rebound, he wanted to be with Aunt May, I guess. Oh, right, right, right. That's interesting. And I do wonder if there was a little behind-the-scenes action there. It does – right. I mean, like, I I understand that she's like, maybe you can quit being a superhero and just, you know, move on to a different stage in your life. At the same time, when Earth is literally being invaded by aliens, it seems weird for her to be like, let the professionals deal with this. Yeah. It's like, you've seen your husband's new nano suit. There's nobody else who can deal with this situation. (laughs) It, it's a lot like it's a, a bit like something like The Incredibles, and it makes me think of what you guys were talking about with Hulk too, where it's like the marriage is is going to be at its happiest when both people in the marriage are fully actualized as themselves, right? When when they get to live authentically as themselves and love each other as themselves and appreciate each other as themselves. So it's interesting to consider that even at the beginning of the movie, which is supposed to be the part of the movie where everything is fine where there's already a sense that we're picking up that there's something wrong that might come from the fact that there's something off with Tony, that he's not living the way that he should be at this point, and that maybe that's what's going to happen in the next Avengers movie is he's going to sort of fully actualize himself. He's going to finish whatever it was he finally needed to do as Iron Man. He's going to expel this Mm. ghost that he faced when he blew up that Chitauri invasion and that scared the bejesus out of him, and he's going to come around, or he's going to you know, use the power of the soul stone to swap himself for Spider-Man and then Spider-Man will come back like either, either or like he's either going to die a noble death or he's going to have such a victory that he can finally settle down uh, because he's not ready yet. When you mentioned that the relationship works when uh, both people are self-actualized, I actually sort of thought of the end of Iron Man three where we thought Mm. we had a lot of closure. um, And some people were speculating that kind of might be, uh, might be it for Tony Stark. Um, Uh, and but the demands of the serialized storytelling uh, do not permit that, right? right. I think that speaks to both um, the good and bad parts of the uh, extended aspect of the Marvel, uh, or the, I was about to say Marvel extended universe, yeah. but the, just the the whole serialized aspect, the project of this, like it's being treated as a big television, um, uh, a massive, massive television series, television episode, uh, yeah. sorry, television season. Um, but we still have the expectations of the two two and a half hour long movie that has a beginning middle and end and uh it 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 can't break fully free of that i mean overall again i think we're saying that it's succeeding but that's one area where where these character arcs like don't quite work out and they're trying to have their cake and eat it too 
that was one of the big problems with the dark universe, the dark extended universe, which was that the mummy, they really wanted the mummy to come back for another movie. But the mummy's just so old at this point. Like the mummy is like 5000 years old. And it's just, you know, mummy's a little old to keep doing movies, but it's like, you got to do it. You got to come back, mummy. <laughs> and then Tom Cruise is like, I'm a little bit old to do this, too. And then the mummy's like, I'm 10 times older than you are, 100 times older than you are, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is like, you know, I have eternal aliens that live inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> so then they bonded over that. Anyway, sorry, let's I'm going to stop my behind the scenes Universal's The Mummy fan fiction. <laughs> well, I don't that might be a great transition to the eternal question about, like, how come? Marvel does this so well, and nobody else seems to be able to get one of these, even a fraction of 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 the traction that Marvel has. I mean, we're we're 19 movies into this series, and we're still talking about how we're excited where Tony Stark goes next, which is crazy. Because when you think even as a, a franchise that we consider to be pretty durable, like X Men, really by X Men Two was the high point, and ever since then they've been sort of running on fumes, if you ask me. Yeah. It is interesting. You got to think there's a couple people will talk about and credit the producers, which is like it's funny. I like I like it when people say that it's Kevin Feige, the producer, not having to deal with studio interference, wherein what Kevin Feige's job is, is to be the studio interference also. And that it's sort of like in other movies, the producer is the villain. And in this movie, the producer is, is kind of the hero. Uh, but he also would, you know, Disney would probably come in and make them do other things and change the characters for the toys and stuff. Mark, you go ahead. You no, have it's, it's the right kind of studio interference. Yeah. Right. Uh, you, you know, he uh, you, you can all say this in retrospect because it's all been successful. Right. But he knew what the right success ingredients were. He was devoted to um, the source material um, and he gave enough freedom to the different directors. And like, for example, Taiko Waititi um, to have their unique stamp on things um, while not diverting too much from the overall project. Uh, from what I understand, I listened to a podcast recently uh, and I will include a link to that in the show notes, uh, recode media um, that goes into detail. This is, this is really an exception. Um, Sony could not do this for the Spider-Man universe. Um, they were kind of too dependent on the star and on the director um, Tobey Maguire and Sam Raimi, respectively, um, and they tried to sort of replicate that with uh, what's his face and what's his face <laughs> yeah. for the reboot of Spider-Man, and it just didn't work. They didn't they didn't exert enough control in the right places, and uh, they gave too much freedom in the wrong places. Yeah, and I do when I watched an interview with Kevin. Is it Feige? Feige? I don't even know. But he was talking about how he thought the Russo brothers were the right people to direct the two-parter for Infinity War. And he described their stamina. He said they have the stamina. And that, A, could be just nonsense, right? They just could be like Hollywood people praising each other for being amazing. But it also could be a manager who actually does appreciate that you got to change it up because people get tired. That you got That it's a marathon, not a sprint. And that you got to save something, I guess. But maybe the way you save something is you keep fresh legs on the bench. But, but let, me pr- let me put out a different idea. One of the huge advantages that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has really, really used is the vast array of Marvel stories that are already made. There's just so many Marvel stories in the years and years and years and years of comic books, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of story arcs across all of these different characters, many, many characters we haven't even seen yet. And so they have the benefit of going through all of that and finding the stuff that the audience already liked, the stuff that was good. 
Right. Uh, and, and the stuff that has been proven already, it's almost like they're making adaptations. It's almost like they're making classic rock rather than new rock. Because, it, well, you know, the guy who always reminded me of this is J.R. from Beluga Heights, the producer for Jason Derulo and a bunch of other musicians who's like a Juilliard violinist. I've talked about him on the podcast before. He's, he was I think he was a Juilliard violist or violinist who went into producing pop music. And what he says is, is that he figured out that it was a lot easier to find something that people already liked. And he doesn't mean that in a stylistic way. He means like a specific hook that already works and use it in a new way. Then, and then that's a lot easier to do than to try to come up with a new hook. And that's why he uses the image in Heap song, you know, what you say in the ridiculous Jason Derulo song about, you know, uh, hide and seek is the image in Heap song and he uses it in what you say. The Infinity Gauntlet has been popular for 40 years. It, it is a memorable thing. It's not necessarily a memorable story. In certain ways it is, but there are certain things about the Infinity Gauntlet story that are not memorable, and you'll notice that they're not here. There, There's a large conversation to be had about Adam Warlock that we probably don't need to go into. Why is Adam Warlock not in the story? Maybe because he's stupid, but maybe because he's unnecessary. But there's something about Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet and getting the Infinity Stones when it came out in like the 70s that resonated with people. And and so did, you know, so did the Planet Hulk comics. So did the Thor Ragnarok story. Then those two stories were combined into the one story. And so many of the of the so many of the Marvel stories are adaptations of great story arcs from the Marvel comics and it is fairly rare. Whenever the X-Men movies with like the Brian Singer style X-Men movies got close to that, it was always exciting because it's like, oh man, they're actually going to do a real story. Like when the Phoenix force shows up at the end of Avengers 2, or sorry, the end of X-Men 2, X-Men United, and it's like, oh man, they could do the Phoenix. But of course, they're not going to really do the Phoenix. They don't really do it. They do this nonsense BS Phoenix, which is not at all the things about the story that are good, but they feel like, oh, by just putting it on the screen, we're going to have the fan service, right? Maybe maybe that's the difference, is that is that when you're making a franchise like this and it's adapting something that people love, do you see the stuff that you pull from the stuff that's been successful in the past as fan service that you're giving to the loyal fans as sort of like a throwaway thing that they they might like this? Or do you recognize that the fact that they already like it is is a big glowing arrow pointing at it and saying, this is what you should make the movie about? You should not make an everybody in black Tim Burton version of Batman necessarily you should make like the dark knight returns because everybody loves the dark knight returns now the tim burton batman is great don't get me wrong but you know the there's a certain amount of mileage in that idea that they run out of about halfway through batman returns uh and they make two and a half more movies but you know when you're making the christopher nolan movies it's drawing much more on stories that people already like right um i don't know do you, do you guys have feelings about that do you guys like the Infinity Gauntlet story, I guess, is maybe a question I could float to you to answer all this. Are there any or are there any stories in Marvel, mm. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that you thought were really good, uh, that you thought were really interesting? I have. I think there's a, a detail that I've been thinking about. And I, I don't know 
I think it might be significant, and it's about the it's about where Spider Man's webs come from. Okay. So you go back to the original Sam Raimi movie, and and this is so he, actually let's go all the way back to the sixties to the comic book. So he's bitten by a radioactive spider. It gives him uh, super strength. It gives him spider sense. It gives him the power to walk up walls. It does not, for some reason, and because if I had to guess, Stanley just thought it was icky. It does not give him the ability to spin webs, but he starts. He's a super smart nerd and he starts experimenting and he invents a awesome adhesive and his own web shooters like in his basements you know in his in his the the wood shop at his school in his spare time right yeah. and so for some reason he has mechanical web shooters and everything else is an actual superpower um and then when they made the sam raimi movie uh they changed it and this makes total sense to me. Like, I think I think any screenwriter would be like, it doesn't really make sense that this teenager invents what would be the most amazing adhesive of all time and right. his own private web shooting thing. Like, that's that's too far a leap. It makes more sense that this is one of the powers he gets to the spider. And they did that. And I remember some purists complaining about it. And I think they defended it by being like, this is just it's it's too much. The, the mechanical web shooters are too much. And I noticed that in this movie, and I to, I don't know, I was going to say to my shame, but I don't think I'm ashamed. I've never seen the Andrew Garfield movies. I don't know if he has the mechanical web shooters. Can you guys confirm or deny? We actually had to have on two guests who saw The Amazing Spider-Man 2 to talk about it while I listened because none of us watched that movie. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and they were and, awesome. Yeah. So, I mean. <laughs> So, but here, so here's the thing, and and once again, I'm not really sure if it's supported, but I think it might be. Um, he once again has mechanical web shooters in the Marvel version that he's invented them himself. He mixes up this adhesive. He's got his own private recipe, um, and it's interesting to think about: is that just? fan service because like that's the way that the old school comic books were and he's a beloved character and stanley wrote him that way and that's the way we're going to tell the story even if like it seems like kind of a weird rough edge that you could easily sand off by just making the webs one of his powers um or is it there's something that's actually important about him having the mechanical web shooters and having that level of ingenuity um, that's the Sam Raimi version didn't quite get or didn't understand. Yeah, because the Sam Raimi version is a body horror story about adolescence as much as it is a superhero movie. Uh, and, and in that sense, I really love the Sam Raimi Spider-Man. But I also acknowledge that Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man kind of has more in common with other Sam Raimi characters, people like Ash from Evil Dead or even people like Xena Warrior Princess in his sort of weird awkwardness, but also his sort of super coolness and the, the sort of way everything about his body is totally like sort of weirdly gross, but also kind of, you know, transcendent in certain ways. And uh, Tom Holland's Spider-Man is much more like what Spider-Man is in the comics. And I wonder if part of it is that if Spider-Man is like oozing bodily fluids at all times, if that doesn't change something about his character on like an, on like a very subliminal level, but on a level that comes through. And also the mm -hmm. idea of like if he's super smart and a super nerd, does that also give him a self-confidence and self-assurance and a normalcy to counterbalance his weirdness? That makes Spider-Man more palatable over longer periods of time <laughs> or that makes Spider-Man play better with others. That makes it, you know, makes let Spider-Man be in a movie that isn't a Spider-Man movie. Let Spider-Man be in a movie that isn't a Spider-Man origin story, uh, because if the I because in real life, we 
if we're, you know, reasonably competent with things, we get control over unpredictable bodily fluids like pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Like there's there's maybe some moments where it's like, I don't know what's happening with my body. I'm sweating and gross things are happening and I got pimples and I don't know what's going on. But like that passes and eventually you you go grow through it, uh, which means that if Spider-Man is like oozing web fluid all the time, he's always a teenager and he never gets through it. He never get not only does he never get through puberty, he never gets through like the initial phase of pu puberty that's like utterly horrifying. And, and I guess there's something about Tom Holland's Spider-Man that doesn't really seem like he's dealing with adolescence in that way. He doesn't seem as troubled by it. He seems that, to think that being Spider-Man is just pretty awesome. And yeah, it has like burdens to it, but it's not like, oh my God, what horrible abomination have I become? What hath God wrought mm -hmm. that he makes Spider-Man, right? Yeah, uh, he's way less emo I mean, than Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. Right, remember like the very end of Spider-Man 1, right before the very expensive shot where he swings to the city as he's like, this is my blessing, this is my curse. <laughs> Who am I? I'm, and it does seem like, it's like gee, you're taking a real, and, and not to say that Tom Allen doesn't have a real sense of responsibility. He's the one who gets into the spaceship after after Iron Man specifically tells him not to get into the spaceship because he feels like with great power comes great responsibility, even though I think what one of the delightful things about the Spider-Man is that they have no interest in rehashing the origin story again and again. And oh, I yeah. don't believe I don't believe we even know exactly how his uncle died and how he feels responsible for it. They, they slightly alluded to it in Civil War, but they really seem like they're going to spare us that, that story. And I don't think he says the catchphrase about great power and great nope. responsibility, nope. but that doesn't make it any less presence in any less uh central to that character just because they don't bash us over the head with it yeah yeah so it's almost like it's, it's funny it's like they're letting the other spider-man movies that they didn't have control of do the heavy lifting uh -huh. and so they don't have to yeah really smart stuff on their part um pete so you're asking me like do i like the infinity gauntlet story um either i guess in the comics or in in, in this movie um i am not really familiar with a lot of these comic book um storylines um i've just sort of learned it all secondhand really through these movies um so i have to ask myself like do i like this infinity war story um i, I say that I, I tolerate it um and that i actually prefer in these Mar in the run of marvel movies the storylines that are more grounded um uh, by a grounded, I mean like deal more with sort of our internal human and pol human political problems as opposed to these cosmic threats from purple aliens from outer space. Like I'm of course referring to Iron Man three. Remember, like there's the essentially like the military industrial complex is the enemy. Um, Captain America's uh, the Winter Soldier. Where I'm sure there's like crazy Hydra stuff going on there, but again, like the enemy is within the enemy is the intelligence complex and mass surveillance and those sorts of things. Those I think are my favorite marvel movies um and when thor when i heard that there was a thor movie coming out and he's a norse god and all this kind of stuff i was definitely in the eye rolling camp and this uh this whole experiment is silly and is going to collapse upon its own weight now uh you know many movies later and billions upon billions of dollars later um i have been proven wrong and i have just kind of come along for the ride and i'm enjoying it a lot but i do miss some of the more political uh, and 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 reality based stories from earlier on. Definitely, that's interesting. When you, it's funny because you said purple aliens from outer space, and my mind immediately went to somewhere specific, which yeah, I mean, not Thanos, because it's like there's more than one. Mark, <laughs> there's more than one. Wait, this will not be the last purple alien from outer space that we see coming to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, which is, it's funny because I remember, I think, our discussion in the wake of the first Avengers where we were talking about how you're going to keep them down at the farm once they've seen the Avengers. And the idea is like now that Marvel has 
done a movie like this, this big, this epic, how do you go back to telling smaller, self-contained stories and have it feel satisfying? And I think we all agree, Mark, that they've managed to do it just fine, that some of our favorite Marvel movies are movies where they did dial it back and have the threat be less cosmic in nature and more personal. Um and so, yeah, and you feel like we we are due for one of those contractions, right? This is as big well, as it gets. There's that overall. But the other thing that I'm reminded of is that there's all these Netflix TV shows about um, Luke Cage and Daredevil um, right. getting nitty-gritty yeah. in Hell's Kitchen and dealing with corrupt politicians and stuff like that. And um, uh, it, perhaps it is my loss that I don't watch those. But there's only so much uh, Marvel superhero stuff that I can ingest. I mean, you know, you're not you're missing season one of Jessica Jones is pretty good. There's like four episodes of the Luke Cage show that are really good. Um, uh, I will say that as we were leaving the theater, I did say out loud to anybody who would listen, which I'm sure was nobody. But I did say out loud, hey, everybody, good news. Iron Fist survived. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the immortal Iron Fist, protector of Kunlun and enemy of the hand. Oh, man. <laughs> but, yeah, there is a lot. And and obviously at this point, I don't know if anybody is following all of it. But you got to think that they got to back off and they got to, like, plan for another. Because Thanos has been on the horizon since, you know, the first Avengers movie. And so you got to think that they're going to pull pull back at least a little bit and start another cycle to another climax. Uh, and um, maybe I guess. What I we can wrap up with this is ask you guys where do you think this is going? What do we right now we have up through the beginning of what they call Phase Four, right? Where we know that the upcoming Marvel movies are Ant Man and the Wasp, which is coming out in July, and then there is Captain Marvel, which is we haven't really talked about Captain Marvel all that much because I have some cool fun ideas about her, and I'm sure you do too. That's a '90s period piece. So they don't even have to touch on the events of of the movie, the current movie, until the very end after the credits, as as per usual. Samuel L. Jackson doesn't have to wear an eye patch. Yeah, I mean that 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 should be a big upgrade for anybody. Maybe we'll see where he loses his eye. Maybe maybe it's. I, a, I really hope it's an after the credit scene, and it's just like a careless accident, like he's yeah. in the shower. <laughs> you know, like, like, like carrots, and one goes yeah. into his face. Yeah. Through, through the whole movie, you're waiting for like some horrific fight scene where like he loses an eye and like just barely manages to save the world, and it's just something where it's like walking back to his car at the end, yeah. where, like. I'm sorry, Nick Fury. You have macular degeneration. <laughs> what? What does that mean? We're going to have to take your eye out. What? That doesn't sound right. No one's ever had to do that. Um, <laughs> what, what I what I have noticed is I, I remember the current slate of Marvel movies leading up to Avengers Four. That was all announced a long time ago. Yeah. That I remember. I remember them coming out with this timeline probably like five years ago. I think it was a little different. I think they had an Inhumans movie on the calendar at some point, and that got pulled off. Um, but basically. Basically, like they announce the stuff, and I notice that they've been very reluctant to announce what's coming next. I mean, I think we know for a fact because it's coming out next July that there's a Spider-Man two. I think we know that there's a Guardians of the Galaxy three, but we don't know yep. exactly who's in it. Yep. Um, I think they they went out and said that there'll be a Doctor Strange two. Oh, I've heard rumors to that, but it's not in the official list that I've it's seen. Not officially Maybe. there, and yeah. so I mean, part of that I think is that they want to be a little cagey about who survives and who doesn't because if they announce their whole slate that takes away some of the fun out yeah. of out of seeing like who's going to still be around um another part of it might be as you know they've been trying to make a deal with 20th century fox and that would introduce a whole another slate of heroes that they can sort of fold into the mix 
Yeah. Um, including, I mean, near and dear to Marvel's hearts are uh, the Fantastic Four, which was some of uh, Stan Lee's beloved creations. I mean, the the sort of origin story of Stan Lee is that he was going to quit the company because they had him do. He wasn't even really doing superhero things. Marvel was just sort of known for. Like, I, I, it's actually funny going back to what we said earlier. I think Marvel was known for doing like spoofs and being like wacky, sort of funny comics, almost like Mad Magazine style. Um, and he, you know, he's, his wife was the one who suggested before you quit, like, write one story that you really want to write. And he wanted to do this thing that was less about superheroes saving the earth and more about this family dynamic, more about the sort of personal relationships of the superhero team and that was the fantastic four and now marvel's getting them back um along with more interestingly x-men and so that you can imagine some sort of a tease at the end of avengers 4 where you know everything is everything's resolved some people are alive some people are dead and there's sort of like a cut to like a, a dark alleyway and whatever you know the back alley of new york uh, is currently undefended by Jessica Jones, the cage, iron fist or daredevil. Um, and like somebody's big, somebody's quartered, somebody's about to be mugged. And then all of a sudden there's like a silhouette at the end of the alley. Uh, and they're like, Hey, you want to stay out of this? Don't, you don't want to mess with us. And all it is, is like a close up of the guy's fist and the three Wolverine claws pop out of it. <laughs> and then it's like, and then, so you wouldn't even need to show who it is. You wouldn't need to indicate when it's coming. It would just be an indication that, like, guess what? They're mutants now. And sooner <laughs> or later, they're going to start popping up. And then you could you could tell this. And it would actually be really interesting that instead of it being a world where mutants are sort of a known quantity, it would be a world where mutants are just starting to come out of the shadows. Um, it would require a radically different X-Men story because so much of what we were used to is the Xavier Lencher, right, the um, Dr. Uh, X and Magneto dynamic. And that, of course, very much has its roots in the Holocaust and, uh, you know, a time frame which I don't think would work um, in, in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as it exists now, um, which might be a feature, not a bug, right? And you don't want to really rehash all those stories again. You have to come up with a completely new uh, a, a premise for them to be here. Yeah, it is interesting. So do you think they're going to do Fantastic Four first or X-Men first? If they get the if they get the sign off, maybe at the same time. Why not do it all at the same time? I mean, oh, it's an, I think if you have to write Iron Man out, either because he's too expensive or because you feel like his characters run his course, it makes sense to introduce another sort of technocrat genius who has a skyscraper in New York City. Where I mean, in a way, the Fantastic Four are a great substitute for Tony Stark because they're your sort of billionaire philanthropist, adventurer, inventor. Type. Uh, no, I mean, like, obviously, uh, character-wise, very different, but can play the same sort of central organizational role in yeah. the Marvel universe, sort of pulling together these heroes into a team and maybe outfitting them, giving them a home base. Uh, so that's a way you could play it. Mm. I, and that would lead us to another purple alien, of course, which would be the eventual arrival of Galactus, who's the best. I love Galactus. He's not he's purple. Just, he's, no, he's just really big, right? He's, he's really, a purple really, really hat. Big. He has a big hat. He's got like a weird hat with a square window in it that his face is, shows out of, and it's got handles on it, like it's some sort of jug that you drink out of. So, it, <laughs> so if all I know about Galactus is from Fantastic Four Two: Rise of the Silver Surfer, Galactus is not just a giant cloud. 
Oh, God. Oh, you, everything you know about Galactus is from that terrible movie. No, I'm joking. I actually know about Galactus. But I, just, <laughs> I don't I, know about I, Galactus. I Tell me about Galactus and how he's not a giant cloud. So Galactus is the best. So here's here's the quick rundown of Galactus. Galactus is a dude. Uh, I guess his origin story in the comics is that he was a dude in another universe that was collapsing, and he kind of fell into the collapsing of the universe. Uh, there was a problem in the universe, depending on what you talk about it. Uh, it's, there's no real need to go into it in too much detail. But then he, it, the, the universe kind of ends and begins again. There's like a new universe through some mechanism. And this guy who had been in the old universe finds himself in the new universe. And at first he's kind of comatose or in a sort of cocoon of some kind. And then after many, many countless eons of the universe developing, he un- he unfolds or he bursts forth and he is giant and he is, has a very deep voice and he's somewhat humorless a lot of the time. But and he has Pete, an insane – just for context, when you say giant, how giant – Oh, like not that, like smaller than he should be given his job description. I thought he was like, I thought he was like big enough to eat planets. He like, is, but different. that's the thing. He doesn't. He needs a machine to turn them into stuff that's small enough for him to eat. Oh, like they're not, like, they're not bite sized to him. No, he's gotta, like he's not grind him up in a paste. He's, he's got to get like a vacuum sealer so we can have some for later. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm, I'm googling how tall is Galactus right now. Galactus, Galactus is. Uh, his sometimes he's as small as ten feet tall. Uh, how tall is Galactus? Twenty eight feet nine inches is what I'm seeing. So, so here's what Galactus does. Hundreds of miles tall. No, Galactus to eat. So in the Transformers, there's Unicron, who's a giant robot that's the size of a moon, and he eats planets. Galactus is a dude who's about as big as like a London double decker bus, give or take. Maybe two of them on top of each other. But he he has an insatiable hunger to feed on the life force of entire planets, and and he does this by arriving at a planet uh, and, and we'll get to that in a second building a giant machine out of parts that he carries in his van you know in his like in his space trailer uh, in his spaceship it was the and, 70s it's a very nice spaceship it's the nicest spaceship around and he he slowly assembles this machine which he then uses to to extract the energy of the planet and feed on it and uh, and this is a very time-consuming process. So Galactus's other characteristic is that he hires assistants. He delegates. So Galactus has what's known as heralds, who are reg- like usually regular people or maybe superheroes, but Galactus invests them with great power. Sort of like what happens in Apocalypse, X-Men Apocalypse. Apocalypse does the same thing in X-Men, where he picks horsemen, and he like gives them some of his power, and they get superpowered. Uh, and then the heralds of Galactus go flying out, out through the universe to find tasty planets for Galactus to eat. And then they come back to Galactus, and are like, hey, Galactus, there's one right here. I put it on my map. Let's go. They're, they're like location scouts. Exactly. And what, the most famous of them is the Silver Surfer. And that is his job, is the Silver Surfer surfs through outer space shooting rainbows from his fingertips and arrives in foreign planets. And and now, granted, Iron Man sounded stupid, too, before they made a movie about it. All right. So, like, <laughs> I and they, and here's the thing. We, this is what we've talked about. They made the Galactus story as the sequel to the Michael Chiklis 
uh, Jessica Alba Fantastic Four movie, right? <laughs> like the, uh, the where where Chris Evans cut his superhero teeth as Johnny Storm. They made they they made Galactus, except that they had no courage about making Galactus be a thirty foot tall guy in a purple outfit with a crazy hat with giant jug handles on it. So no, he was, just, he was like the nothing from the never ending story. He was just a big cloud of space dust that was going to envelop the Earth. Yes, exactly. And they made him more plausible for the kind of movie they wanted to make, which right. turned it's out like giving the terrible. organic web shooters instead of the mechanical web shooters. They're like, well, that's too ridiculous. Exactly. They took something that so so Marvel is like throwing crap at the wall for years and years and years. <laughs> and they had certain times where they had a pretty high percentage shot in terms of getting it to stick, like the heyday of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and stuff. But like Galactus stuck. People like Galactus. Galactus is great. So the question isn't how do I change Galactus in order to get him to fit into my movie? The question is, how do I change my movie in order to get it to fit Galactus? <laughs> right? And and maybe that's the question. I hopefully I'm probably Probably way off, and we're going to be watching some totally unrelated thing based on new IP, or maybe Marvel was planning to hand off to Star Wars and are now panicking, right? Because it's because maybe Solo won't do so great. I don't know, but maybe you know, seven years down the road, we're going to be sitting here watching old Purplehead, you know, start building up his machine down in the middle of uh, Smallville, Kansas, or wherever he decides to land. It will be right next to Fantastic Four's building. I'll tell you that right now. It'll be very convenient, um, or it'll be Antarctica or something. Um, and maybe we'll be seeing them take another beloved story that nobody thought anybody could ever make and uh, and making that happen there. So that's my prediction. Mark, do you have any final predictions? Uh, nothing too serious other than DC crossover. It could happen. <laughs> if X-Men right. crossover is definitely in the works, then uh, sure, why not? Why not I'll- have <laughs> Batman and Iron Man team up? I will there do. Was a, a, <laughs> there was an episode of a uh, Parks and Recreation where Patton Oswalt is a guest star and he's trying to filibuster, and he starts uh, pitching uh, Marvel superhero movie ideas. And one of them is a crossover with Star Wars. Right, right, right. right. He's like, just Disney owns both of them. There's no reason they can't do it. <laughs> so that would certainly be if there was like an after the credits. Um, you know, tagline where there's like a portal opens up and the Millennium Falcon flies through. That would certainly <laughs> get people curious about what comes next, wouldn't it? All right. So, Mark, I'll make a long bet with you right now. Sure. You name you name the stakes. Name the stakes. Or do you want me to tell you what the bet is before you name the stakes? Uh, you tell me what the bet is. Oh, here's the bet. You win if the the first of these two events that happens, there's going to be two events. The first one that happens is there's a DC Marvel crossover. You win the bet. Okay. All right. Here's if I win the bet. I win the bet. If the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles enter the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that's how I win the bet. Oh, that's much more likely. That's I think <laughs> oh, okay. All right, fair enough. So you won't take that bet. You're not going to no, take, no, take that bet. No, I'm not going to take that bet. No. All. <laughs> all right. Well, maybe I'll just maybe. Okay. All right. All right. If that, ha- if that happens, then I'll take you out to pizza, Pete. Uh, yeah, that's what I'll say. Here's what's going to happen: If the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles make it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I will throw a giant pizza party for all of you guys and and also for fans. I don't know how big it will be or where, but I'm going to make that pledge right now. I don't necessarily think it's going to happen, but it's not going to like Cowabunga indeed. And on that note, I think it's time to bring this podcast to a close. <laughs> Thank you, Mark and Matt, for this wonderfully in-depth and, and uh, much more manageably sized foray into Avengers Infinity War. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. 
Absolutely. And please, please come watch. Go to the YouTube channel. Watch the Eurovision videos. They're hilarious. Step outside your comfort zone. Eurovision is awesome. Or if you like Eurovision, you should be watching the videos already. They're great. We know what we're talking about. And join us at the party in New York next weekend. And of course, regardless of where you go or what you do, please visit us on the web at Overthinking It, uh, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It it probably doesn't deserve. It is I, Matt Rather, agent of podcast, and oh no, this one ended without an after credit scene. Quick, before I disappear. Hey Siri, call Harvey Firestein. Hello?